Well, this morning, uh, before I start, I just want to make mention that uh, we rolled out the scroll so that the uh, beautiful structure, artwork, of Exodus chapter 15 is uh, just evident there. And uh, if you'd like to come either later or even while I talk in order to look at it, please feel free to do so because it is a real uh, work of art. And uh, I I would love for you to see it right in the scroll if you haven't done so already. If you turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 12 or your device, whatever you use. The class uh, that day was remarkable. Nobody slept through it. That's a good, that's good. Nobody even checked their text messages or their Instagram account. In fact, no one even looked at the clock. The students were just blown away and their confusion was transformed into clarity. The subject that day was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In fact, Luke states it this way. He interpreted to them in all of the scriptures concerning himself. So in that class on the road to Emmaus, what might Jesus have said about himself when he taught the Passover and the Exodus from Exodus chapter 12 to 15? I'm not sure. But I want to suggest or propose two realities this morning that I think would have been core to what Jesus would have said to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. First of all, Jesus Christ is our propitiation. Big word, let me explain it. Let's begin then in Exodus chapter 12, and I've selected specific verses Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. Verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Verse 7, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. It is the Lord's Passover. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Now, the Passover, as probably all of you know, in Exodus was God's deliverance. It was Yahweh's salvation for Israel. And that event of Exodus 12 was to be commemorated annually as Israel's remembrance that the Lord, that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The Passover event became central in Israel's worship and was celebrated with song, with ceremony, and with sermon. And essential, always essential, to Yahweh's deliverance in Exodus 12, as well as essential to the annual Passover memorial feast, was the Passover lamb. Always 
the lifeblood of the Lamb was required. Please note, in the passage that uh, we already read from Exodus chapter 12, that it is the Lord. It is not the Israelites. It is not the Egyptians. It is the Lord who sees the blood, and it is the blood that is important to God so that he saves and delivers. Now, I want to note that it is um, the salvation of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus is a foreshadow of the Lord's salvation that was fulfilled in Jesus and central to the Lord's deliverance in the New Testament is the Passover lamb. In fact, the Apostle Paul explicitly states, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And again, it is the blood of the lamb that is required. Why? Why? Well, you could all answer this question, but let me just... um, Remember it along with you. God is infinitely holy. And therefore, infinitely separated from us in our sin. If sinful humanity was to have a relationship with a holy God, the offense of sin could not simply be ignored or overlooked. God couldn't just look the other way. But the righteous requirement of the offense needed to be satisfied. Atonement, or the word I want to use this morning, propitiation, was necessary to fulfill the righteous demands of a holy God. And that propitiation, that appeasement of God's righteous wrath against sin was possible only through the shedding of blood. For the lifeblood of the flesh is in the sorry, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, says Leviticus 17 and 11. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now I want you to note in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, the writer there says that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. The blood of the Lord Jesus is precious to God. Because the lamb is entirely worthy to satisfy his holy requirement for our offense. Jesus, the Passover lamb, who knew no sin, who did no sin, in whom there is no sin, was made sin, who became sin for us. In propitiation, it is God who sees the blood, and he passes over and provides his salvation. Jesus is our propitiation, says John. Jesus is not only our propitiation, but he is also our redemption. And I want to look at that from Exodus chapter 13. Again, I'll just choose selected verses here. 
Then in verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Then in verse 5, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you two are, are to observe this ceremony. So again, Yahweh's, Yahweh's deliverance is not only out of Egypt, it is into the promised land. It is not only out of slavery, it is into freedom. And again, Israel's deliverance out of slavery and into freedom is a foreshadow of God's deliverance and freedom as fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Let's look at that in the New Testament. First of all, let's begin with Peter, who says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Have you read that before? Yeah. Paul describes the empty way of life in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's talking to the church. You can see that. I've underlined and to see how important it is. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I don't have to point out to you that Paul is saying, to the church, to us. This is our story. We were those who were in bondage to Satan, to sin, and to self. There was no possible way left to ourselves and by ourselves that we could escape from the slavery that we were in. But we have been redeemed. We have been purchased out of that slave market of sin. And the redemption price, Peter says, for that purchase, for that redemption, is the precious blood of Jesus. There was no gold, there was no silver that we think is so, so important, but is so perishable that could make the purchase price. It was only the precious blood of our Savior. And so the blood is not only precious to God in propitiation, but it is precious to us in our redemption, in which he has purchased us out of that slave market of sin. But not only has he redeemed us out of, he has redeemed us into a freedom. He has given to us every spiritual blessing, not one left out, so that we might live for the praise of his glory. That is our redemption, not only out of, but into so that we might give him glory in the lives that we live. Jesus Christ 
is not only our propitiation, Jesus Christ is our redemption. The writer to the Hebrews states again and again, Christ is better. Christ is superior as he compares to Old Testament worship. And the author there in Hebrews unfolds this message in a number of different arguments. Christ is better than angels. Christ's priestly work is superior. Christ brought in a better covenant. Christ offers a better sacrifice. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than Joshua. Christ is better, a better priest than the Aaronic priests. Christ is a better tabernacle. You have to get the message in Hebrews. Christ is better. The story of Passover and Exodus are dominant in the Old Testament. The Exodus and Passover are certainly miraculous, amazing, genuine demonstrations of the Lord's salvation for Israel. But as amazing as they are, the Passover and the Exodus are merely foreshadows. Christ is better. Christ is superior. And in the classroom on the road to Emmaus, Jesus interpreted to them the Passover and the Exodus concerning himself. The disciples were not to miss that the message of the Passover and the message of the Exodus was the message about Jesus. Nor should we. So what? What difference does it make? As we sit here in our chapel uh, in November of 2021, what does this series of chapels on the road to Emmaus, our journey with Jesus, what difference does it make? Again, I don't know. I don't know what all God wants to do in our lives as a body. I don't know what he wants to do in your life individually. But this morning, I want to take a few minutes to think with you about the responses that were by the two disciples that Jesus was teaching that morning or that afternoon or evening. Three responses that they had that I think emulate for us. Perhaps responses that God would like to see in our own lives as we think about our own journey with Jesus. So we're going to turn now from Exodus and go to Luke chapter 24 where this um, takes place. The first response that I see by these two disciples is desire for Jesus. In verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. So as they journeyed with Jesus, and as he explained the word of God to them, their hearts burned. I understand that to mean that was that stirred within them was a deeper desire, a deeper longing, a deeper hunger, a deeper thirst. 
A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, writes about the burning heart. This passage really bugs me. It's bugged me for years. Uh, So if you've been in my class, you've read it before, but here it goes. He says, everything is made to center about the initial act of accepting Christ. And we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a false logic which insists that if we have found him, we need no longer seek him. The experiential heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of Scripture. To have found God and to still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love, scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in the happy experience of the children of the burning heart. What's he saying? Well, simply, he's saying if we have made a decision for Jesus in the past, and we expect that by that, we have our ticket to heaven in the future. But today, we have no desire. We have no burning heart for the Lord. We are simply living with an empty bucket of religion. If we have no desire, if we have no lover's ache for God, we have a spiritual malady. We have a spiritual sickness. And the danger is in our lives that we can allow them to be consumed with trivial pursuits that desensitize and dissipate our desire for God. It seems to me, in fact, that we have a unique danger of this kind of heart sickness in a place like Prairie College where we have so much opportunity for spiritual things. What's our first response? I think from the disciples it is that we become, if we're not, we become children of the burning heart. That knowing him, we want to know him more. That loving him, we would love him more. That desiring him, We desire him more. Number two, dwelling with Jesus. I see this in verse 28 and 29. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was just going to go away. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. Now, it's very obvious from our passage that they are asking him literally, personally, to stay with them. And at their invitation, he does exactly that. I believe there is an important and legitimate spiritual application to our own lives in this passage today. So, let me take you to John chapter 15, in which Jesus says to his disciples, Remain in me, as I also remain in you. Now, hopefully I'll make the connection between these two things here in just a minute, so give me a minute. 
In John's gospel, the term remain is used of dwelling in a certain place, of staying somewhere as one's dwelling place. So then remain means to make one's dwelling or make one's home. What does it mean to remain in Christ? To make our home in him. As he makes his home in us. Why does Jesus say that? Well, in John chapter 15, Jesus has told his disciples that he's checking out. Right? He physically, personally, will no longer be with them. And the disciples become very anxious because they will no longer enjoy this relationship that they have had of camping out with Jesus for two or two and a half years. To these fearful disciples, the ones who are concerned that Jesus is leaving, he reminds them that the nature of their relationship is going to change, but not for the worse, it's going to be for the better. Because the intimacy of their personal association with him will be replaced by a deeper, more lasting, more intimate spiritual union with him. And that spiritual union is remaining, in which he is at home in us, and in which we are at home in him. Now, The primary work of remaining is exclusively the work of God in our lives. He graciously apprehends us and he comes to live in our lives by his spirit who fills us and gives us his spiritual nature. He renews us just as the example or the analogy that Jesus uses in John 15, which is the vine and the branches. This union with Christ is not something that you could do or you could achieve or that somehow you deserve or that you could make happen. It was the gracious work of God that he has done in our lives. Well, let me just, and okay, now I'm going to connect the two, I hope. But his work of remaining in us is not our response of remaining in him. It is because of his gracious invasion in our lives that we have the responsibility and the privilege to remain in him. And our remaining in him, this is what I want to say this morning about this application in our own lives, our remaining in him begins with our invitation to Jesus to stay with us. It is our our heart invitation to the omnipresent God to be at home in our space. It means that there are no places in our lives in which we have annexed him out and said to him, you are not welcome here. It is our urging to Jesus, stay with us. My wife's name is Vera. I've known her for about 40 years. I know a lot about her, a lot more than you do. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) But I assure you that I am not content with only knowing about her. 
I want to remain with her and I want her to remain with me. We want to do life together and grow deeper in our relationship with each other. Knowing about her, I can tell you, knowing about her is not enough. You see, I get to go home tonight and we're going to have supper together and we're going to hang out and we're going to do some life together and on Sunday we visited our granddaughter and celebrated her first birthday and and I could go on and on. We want to do life together because I want to experience her. And that remaining in her and her in me is largely dependent on my invitational presence, a heart that's open to her and that has not annexed her out because she is not welcome. And I want to say in our Prairie College context, there is a danger of us, there is a danger of us gaining more and more knowledge about God while at the same time marginalizing him out of our lives more and more. What's our second response? I suggest this morning that we cannot be content with only knowing about Jesus. That's good. It's good for us to learn and grow in our knowledge, but it's not enough because we need to urge Jesus the omnipresent Jesus, be at home. Stay with me. Thirdly, verse 35, then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The disciples told others about the Jesus that they had experienced. They declared him. And so began a cascade of witness in which the disciples went to the whole known world. At great personal cost, to proclaim Jesus as dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended, they turned the first century world right side up, and their central message was the message about Jesus. If you look at Prairie's history, you cannot avoid, you must acknowledge whatever way you would look at that history, that it is a history of students who at great personal cost went into the whole world to proclaim Jesus. Prairie students, says Hudson Taylor III, had such great or massive global influence that they brought great blessing to every continent. Wow. That's quite a heritage. And I want to say to you, especially now to you as students, God's call to world evangelism, to declare Jesus to the world, is the call that now falls on this generation of students. It is your turn to take that baton from the students who have gone before you. What is our third response to declare the Jesus that we have experienced. And what is our message about Jesus? What's our message? Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He who knew no sin, who did no sin, and in whom there is no sin became sin for me. And Jesus Christ is our redemption. His precious blood has redeemed us out of the slave market of sin and into freedom in Christ so that I can live to the praise of his glory.
Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Father, thank you for the message of Passover and of Exodus, of your deliverance that has been fulfilled in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Humbly, we express to you this morning our gratefulness and our thankfulness for the great work that you have done for us on our behalf. And we ask that you would remove from our hearts the trivial pursuits that diminish our desire for you. Give us the gift of hunger and thirst. Help us to take down all the no trespassing signs of our lives that marginalize you and say to you, you are not welcome here. Come and stay with us and grant us the favor of your manifest presence. And then, Lord, enable us to share with others that Jesus is our Passover lamb who became sin for us to free us from slavery of self so that we might live to the praise of your glory. May your face, Lord, shine on us today. We ask this favor in Jesus' name. Amen.